Well, let's take a look at this scripture first, and let me read this for us. Uh, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And here's what we read. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. This is the word of God. Christmas light, hope shines eternal. So it's the Advent season, and uh, Advent, as you heard earlier, means the arrival of Christ. People in the Old Testament are waiting for the Messiah to arrive. And when he shows up, as we see here in this text as well, he's come. That's what they've been waiting for. And so we celebrate and look back to his first coming during Advent season. This leads up to Christmas, uh, Christmas morning. At the same time, we're awaiting his second return. So we're kind of in between two Advents, his first arrival and his second arrival. And so we do this to kind of gather um, energy for the big celebration of Christ's birth that we uh, all celebrate on Christmas morning. So we have an Advent series. And we're looking at the Gospel of John, just the opening verses, not the entire first chapter, because John's Gospel, as it opens up, is all about Christ. It's rich in Christology. You could actually take a seminary course, if you would like, as I did, just in Christology, which is the study of Christ. Who is he? Uh, what, what is, who is he kind of ontologically, the essence of who he is? But what has he done as well? What does it mean for us? And I would guess that probably there is a professor out there who could easily spend an entire semester on John chapter 1, verse 1 after reading all of this. It is mind-blowing, but we're going to look at just a couple of aspects here about what this gospel is saying about the person and the work of Christ and give us a glimpse of why he is the central focus of Christmas. So rich in celebrating his person and his work. And, and so let's start here with verse, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. So the very first thing we read here is that this is a statement about who Christ is, the person of Christ. In the beginning was the Word. He is the eternal Word. We learn in verse 14 that this Word is Jesus. And in the Greek, logos, perhaps you're familiar with that, in the beginning was the logos, now, for the people of that day, certainly as Jesus was walking, there was a very heavy Greek influence. And if any of you ever took a philosophy course, you would have learned about the logos, this source of reason, the kind of ordering structure of everything. So the people of that day, even if they didn't have a Jewish backdrop, would hear those words from John. But more importantly, as he's writing to others, they would have the backdrop of the Old Testament. The, the word is important in the Old Testament as well. In fact, in the beginning, we read that God created everything. And how did he do it? He spoke a word. Can you imagine that kind of power? Just to, I don't know if any of you watch Star Trek, 
I personally enjoy it. I know there, it seems like there are very few people who do. I, I, I like it for a number of reasons. One, one is it, it, I like philosophy, and it deals with all kinds of philosophical principles all the time. Quite intriguing, couched in science fiction. So it's a perfect fit for me. But of course, you, know, you can go to a machine there and just say, cappuccino, latte, whatever. And ping, it exists. Out of nothing, there is something. Now, that's a ridiculous notion, but it sure sounds good. Wouldn't you like to be able to filet mignon? Boom. I don't know what the limitations in that TV show are about what gets created, but the idea of speaking and what you want coming about, that's kind of attractive, but we also realize it's science fiction. We can't do it, but God can. He came into a place that was completely disordered and dark, darkness covered the surface of the earth. And with a word he spoke, let there be light. And there is light. There is order. There is structure. There is purpose. There is meaning. He's bringing order out of chaos. And in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so when you open up John chapter 1, you see kind of bells and whistles going off. It starts exactly the same way. In the beginning... The very, very same phrase. In the beginning what? In the beginning was the word. In other words, he always has been. He is the eternal word. F.F. Bruce summarizes this whole idea of in the beginning was the word as the word in the Old Testament is the action of God all throughout. He speaks in creation, he speaks and there's revelation, there's understanding. He speaks and there's deliverance for his people. This is the language of creation. Christ himself is eternal. And not only is he eternal, he is the eternal and divine word in fellowship with God. And he is God. Kind of restating what John already said, right? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And if you, if you look at the Greek grammar here too, um, it, it, it points out the fact that there's an intentional distinction and yet there's also an intentional equation. So he was with God means he's distinct from God and yet he was God means he is God. So you have here both distinction but also equation, equality. And that's confusing, isn't it? This is Trinitarian fellowship we're talking about here, that Christ in his person is, is, is distinct, and yet he is in his essence God himself. The Jews of the day certainly understood that Jesus was claiming to be God. In John chapter 8, uh, Jesus is saying some things, and the Jewish leaders of the day weren't sure if he was the Messiah um, and he was showing that he was by the things that he did, but their hearts were hardened or darkened. They couldn't see his light. And there's a point at which actually he, uh, he says, before Abraham was born, I am, John 8, 58. And they were just upset with him until he said that. And when he said before Abraham was born, because Father Abraham had many sons, 
And he also was the person they always they look back to. We, we come from Father Abraham. And Jesus says, before Abraham was born, I am. In the beginning, I was there. He's claiming to be God. Not just somebody who burst onto the scene by human means, but the one who's truly divine and always has been. And at that point, they take up stones and they're going to throw them at him. This infuriates him because nobody claims to be God. Unless you're the Messiah, and they didn't think he was. Do you understand this? person of Christ, and just a real quick summary of this doctrine, very, very brief. This is how theologians have attempted to describe it over the years. Christ is one person with two natures, God and man. One person, two natures. Each nature is complete and distinct. That is, he's fully God and he's fully man. And what is true of one nature is also true of the person. This describes things why Jesus says, I don't know the hour, but that's in his, in, in his nature as, as a human. He's got limitations, and yet he does know because he is God in his person. But he's limited himself in that nature. And the beauty of this, of course, is something that you never stop discovering. As we'll see in, in, in the verses ahead, too, God made himself put on flesh. And now he can identify fully with us in a way that he couldn't before. Fully God, fully man, eternal, divine. And remarkably, he's in eternal fellowship with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We sang about that. This picture of the Godhood in eternal fellowship, each, each loving and serving the other, mutual affection, that is unending. And it's a picture in very many reasons, if you say, well, so what? At least on the fellowship side, this God who exists in eternal fellowship invites us into that kind of fellowship as well. We read about that in First John when I was praying, too. We, we are to image Trinitarian fellowship in our fellowship with one another. And we can't have darkness in us if that's the case. You know, this is one of the great challenges, say, in a husband and wife relationship and one of the great opportunities with nothing hidden. There's, there's, there's no sin being cherished. I was listening to a show earlier this week on a 15-year study. It wasn't done by believers, but it was a 15-year study of the relationship between social interaction and health. So everybody here cares about being healthy, right? And this, this study examined all kinds of people, mostly an older segment of population. So it was 57 to 85 over 15 years to track a correlation between their overall health and their social relationships. And maybe it shouldn't surprise you to find that there is a direct correlation between people's health and longevity and how rich they were in social relationships. Now, that's a, that's a good example of where, a, a, say, a secular study just proves the things that we ought to already know from what Scripture says. If we image God and he's an eternal fellowship and we are, we are distanced from others, then it's going to affect us. We're total beings. 
You can't just say physical and spiritual and mental. And you can't divide those components. And so here we are. We are desperately in need of relationships with other people and fellowship with others. I was listening to a podcast, this one was with believers, mentioning people age 80 with rich relationships fare much better than ones who are rich in wealth. Another study done by somebody looking at 80-year-olds and saying, how do we gauge? And there's other factors, but one they found out was if they have a good relationship system, they're much better off than people who maybe spent their own whole lives trying to get money and burned relationships as a result. Both 80 years old, who's doing better? The person who's rich in relationship. And I just find that not surprising, given what the scriptures say, and given who Christ is, and the eternal fellowship, and the fact that he invites us into that as well. Well, that's one kind of so what from these verses. There are so many you could do, but just to highlight one more. Christ is eternal and divine, and therefore all things are possible for him. If what John says here is true, then Christ can repair anything that is broken. There's nothing impossible for him. His ways are, by virtue of his deity, deity higher than ours. If you come to a point where you understand everything, we've, we have all that we need to understand and to thrive But there are always going to be some things we can't understand about who God is and his ways. Because, you know, once you arrive at that point, well, then you're God. And you're not. So then it becomes an element of, can I trust this God? And this is what's so beautiful about the gospel. He shows you can. He comes into a world that's broken and says, I want to repair this. And I'm willing to surrender the thing that matters most to me, the very Son of God. So there, there's, a, there's a reality. We know he's eternal and he's divine. That means nothing is impossible. So I, I know he can fix broken things. And his first coming, he starts showing how he's in the process of doing that, as we'll see in just a moment. And with his second coming, then what has begun, he finishes and he completes. And we know he'll complete it because he's eternal. He knows all things. He can do all things. So this is the hope that we have during this Advent season. It's a true anchor for our souls, especially if this time of year is hard. Anytime we have a Mother's Day, a Father's Day, a Parents' Day, an International Day of Women, an International Day of Skittles, I don't know, we have days for everything. Anytime there's a celebration, it usually, I, I think, can, can, for people who have a, a loss during that time, highlight and amplify the loss. And this time of year, Christmas time, maybe for you, it's, it's exciting. But for some, some others, it's difficult. Where's the hope? Shines eternal right here. A God who understands he's both eternal and divine. And as we'll see, he wrapped himself in flesh. So verse 3 goes on to say a little bit more about not just the person of Christ, but begins to talk about his work as well. And You'll hear this, maybe, the person and the work of Christ, who he is and what he does. We looked a little bit about who he is, and now we see some of what he does. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. So John here says Christ is the agent of creation. Everything that exists, he is the agent of it. It wouldn't exist without him. 
And, and therefore, you could say that even if you're not a follower of Christ today, you have, if this is true, obviously, a, a, maybe a shred of gratitude on that sense that you even breathe and have a existence itself. From the scriptural perspective, this is because of Christ. You know, Paul talks uh, about this to a, a group of people who actually weren't believers, and in him we live and move and have our being. But the Bible especially talks about this idea of Christ's agency of creation in several different ways. Look at Colossians chapter 1, 16 to 17. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Christ is the glue of creation. You take him out of the equation, it would just spin out of control. At least that's the claim of the scriptures here. He's the agent of creation who cohesively pulls everything together, and he is the one to whom creation points as the worthy creator to be worshipped. So there should be some sense of emptiness in us if we're not making him the object of our worship. He holds all things together. He's before all things. I mean, you see what I mean by Christology, the study of Christ? This is just so rich. Who is this person and what has he done? And here's an idea about him being the word again as well. And this from the book of Hebrews. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers, to the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. He's the final word. Whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of his being. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. Everything is sustained because of Christ. He is the final word. This is why Christians love Jesus and why we celebrate his birth and celebrate who he is and what he does. By his agency at creation, Christ spoke into the emptiness and void and he literally brought light and life, purpose and meaning, structure and value. And John records the works of Christ now in space and time among mankind. That's where the gospel of John is headed. So we're just looking at John chapter 1. But if you look at the rest of the gospel, he's saying, here's who Christ is. And then the, all, of, all that flows out of his person is what he does in the rest of the gospels. And it's pretty interesting if you look forward even from John chapter 2 Jesus performs his first miracle he changes water into wine he takes something very ordinary and he makes it spectacular I mean he's changing the molecular structure of H2O to whatever the molecular structure of wine is what is it? I don't know but Jesus controls every molecule and with a word, he speaks and changes the very nature of something. So that now, it's something spectacular. In John chapter 3, there's this picture of Nicodemus, this teacher of the law. And he's very curious about what Jesus has been teaching. So he comes to him and says, hey, Jesus, what are you talking about? I heard you saying something about being born again. That's not physically possible. 
What do you mean? And Jesus says, no, this is a spiritual birth. You are dead in your sins, and you need to be born again. And I am the one who brings that new creation. In John chapter 4, there's this woman at the well, somebody who was a Samaritan, much despised, and people who were Jewish usually went around the territory. Jesus goes straight through it, talks to a woman, breaks all kinds of cultural barriers. She's a person who's not only a Samaritan, but she's had many husbands, and she's, she's filled with shame. And Jesus acknowledges her personhood, has a conversation with her, and says, what you're really longing for, what you, what you really need is... Somebody to, to fill the deepest part of your soul because you're just trying to fill it up with emptiness. And I am the living water you're looking for. She goes back and says, got to come check this guy out. He knew everything that I ever did. And yet he still embraced me. And in John chapter 5, he comes to this pool where people know that they're sick. And they, they, they can't even walk. And he heals somebody so that now his legs have been restored and he can, can walk and he's no longer outcast or marginalized. This is what Jesus does. We could go through the entire Gospel of John to see Jesus makes all things new. He can do that because he is the God of creation. And by his word, he can accomplish what he wills. And he does it time and time again. You know, I was thinking again about that kind of power. Can you imagine if you had this sort of power? How would you use it? Would it be, for example, give me a million dollars? I know for me, and it was probably pretty obvious, I like food, filet mignon. <laughs> Bam. There it is. That would be so awesome. Brand new car, whatever it is that, that you want. How does Jesus use his power? This is one of the staggering realities of God wrapped in the flesh. Why does he do this? To beat us into obedience? You will be punished. You will not be able to do whatever you want because I'm, I'm against you. He, he takes the form of a servant. He does this repeatedly in the Gospel of John as well. In John 10, he's called the shepherd who protects his sheep. In fact, he lays his life down for his sheep. I don't know how many of you have seen, I was thinking about this Saturday, that video of the sheep. You can just look it up, I'm sure. There's this tiny little crack. Has anybody seen this? And there's a sheep stuck in the crack. And some people come out and get the sheep out. And then the sheep is very happy and starts jumping around. It goes right back into the crack. <laughs> it's, it's hysterical. Has anybody seen that video? Oh, a couple of you. Yeah, that's us. <laughs> right? It's us. And, and Jesus keeps pursuing us. He's a good shepherd. And he lays down his life for, yeah, for people like that. In John 13, at the Last Supper, when he's gathering together and he's, he's preparing his disciples for his imminent death, he takes the lowest form of anybody in the room. He takes the form of a servant. He says, you want to know what greatness is in my kingdom? This is what it looks like. This is how Christ uses his power. In fact, he goes all the way to the cross. And, and at that point, though he certainly had the capacity to demolish absolutely everybody, like in a marble, marble movie or something like that, snap your fingers. He doesn't. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He's still laying his life down and his power. And that's the kingdom that he 
is establishing and that he calls his followers to as well. He, he takes the posture of a servant. In John 19, he dies. Why? So that they can have life. That's what John 3.16 says. God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. See, this is about life and light and the God of all creation taking the form of a servant. That's what Christmas is all about. He was born as a baby. You know, Jasmine, super cute. But Jasmine's probably not a real threat in Crackland to anybody. Maybe breaks down barriers in a kind of way, but this is our God wrapping himself in flesh. That's what he does. This is the agent of all creation. By him, everything is created. Everything holds together, and he lays his life down. That's the story of Christmas. And because of that, in verse 4, we see this is his gift of life. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. John says, Christ is the source of all life. In him was life. Full, abundant life then cannot be had apart from him. Let me say that I think this says all life comes from Christ. We all live and move and have our being because of him. And yet the fullness of life can only be experienced in him. That's why Christmas is so important as a message that Christ came and drew near so we could be in fellowship with him. And until we know that, there's just going to be something missing. We may have life, but not to the full. Jesus says, that's why I came, to give life and to give it full. Fully, completely, totally. In John chapter 15, there's this picture of the organic connection we have with Christ. He is the vine and we are the branches. You can't have fullness of life without being connected to the vine. You know, it does strike me that as Paul says, in him we live and move and have our being, how Christmas invites us to remember that. The incarnate word, full of life, the bringer of light, shining hope eternally. And we can't know that hope without him. And this is reinforced in verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it or overcome it. We'll talk about that in a second. But the point John's making here is that Christ's light is greater than any darkness. Some versions here read understood, and some say overtake. Which is it? Both. If you read... It's, you, you see all throughout the Gospel of John, both is happening. Both senses are true. Christ comes and he is not understood by those who are bound by darkness. They can't comprehend it. This is the Messiah? They can't recognize light as light. And at the same time, this light prevails. Christ does. No matter how dark things may seem, that darkness will never overtake the light. The light's more powerful. In John chapter 9, there's a picture of this lived out as well. Jesus encounters a man who is blind, and he heals that man so the man can see. And it's really I'm a great benefit to that man. He couldn't see, and now he does. But there's other people watching this, and Jesus is teaching them as well that they are spiritually blind. See, they can see, 
but they're walking in darkness because they don't have fellowship with God. And this man, then, to show that Christ is who he says he is, he gives sight to, and he now sees that this is the Messiah. And perhaps even if he was still blind, if he believed that, he's the one who has genuine sight. So when Jesus comes, he says, this is my person, this is my work. Only when you see with these spiritual eyes can you tell that, in fact, he is who he says he is. The Jewish leaders don't get that claim. They investigate all throughout John chapter 9. And at the end, Jesus simply tells them, the blind will see and the seeing will become blind. Here's a person who is blind, who now sees light overcomes darkness. And this isn't the story of two equals. You know, it's not like light versus darkness. Who's going to win? And you, you can prove this very simply. I know some of you have been spelunking. I know some of you have been to absolute darkness. Have any of you been in absolute darkness before? Okay. And I'm sure then you took a light up or something like that. You just strike a match. And what happens? Everything is illuminated. See how much more powerful light is than dark? This isn't two opposite forces duking it out to the end. Christ is the light and he will not be overtaken. Which means that no matter how dark things go for the believer, Christ is there. His light will win. And if it doesn't seem like it in the moment, we have the guarantee that it will. I love looking ahead to heaven. We, we know that Christ came, the, the light is, is, is shining, and then there's a time in the future when all of this is resolved. I, I love the glimpses that scriptures give us. and Like Revelation 21.5, there will be no more night. Isn't that great for kids who are scared of the dark? They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. He is light. This is a picture of where things are headed. But the beauty of this passage, at least in part for me, is that this idea of the light shining in darkness is the only present tense verb in the first eight verses. The light shines in the darkness. That means, seems intentional, it's continuous present living reality. No matter where you are or when you exist, Christ's light is greater than any darkness. It's an ongoing reality. It's a present continuous ongoing truth. No matter where you are. And that really shouldn't surprise us if we know the person and the work of Christ and all these claims that have been made around Christmas morning as well. Because back in the Old Testament, and a lot of you know this already, but when God was revealing himself to people by his word in Revelation, there's this scene with Moses encountering the burning bush, and this self-existent God, he was burning but not being consumed, and Moses comes over to this holy ground and asks him who you are, and he reveals himself with words, and he says, I am who I am. Do you remember that in Exodus 14? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. When Moses is saying, when I go and try to do this crazy thing you've called me to, who should I say is sending me? I am. And when we try to put that, it's called the tetragrammaton, you know, the, the Hebrew and other things together and squish it. You've heard Yahweh, right? Some of you have heard of that you know, attempt to put this into, it just is the to be verb in Hebrew. 
That's God's name. The to be verb. I am that I am. I always have been, always will be. I am, I just am. I'm the self-existent one, eternal, divine. It, it doesn't that, isn't that put the incarnation into perspective? This is the one who is I am now revealing himself in the person of Christ. That's why I say, pew. This, just these verses are, how do you wrap your mind around it? And in a sense, we really can't, but then we also can. Because you put on flesh, put on our feelings, put on our disappointments. That's the message of Christmas. And here he is shining in the present tense, the one who said, I am who I am, who in John 8, 58 now, we say, before Abraham was born, I am. Ego, me in the Greek. And when I was learning Greek, we used to say, Lego, my ego, me." <laughs> right? It's like, he, I am. He's identifying with God. So it's not a surprise, or it shouldn't surprise us, as we go through the Gospel of John throughout, to see all these I am statements that Jesus makes. I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the door of the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. We were studying, we've been looking at the Gospel of John uh, with our English as a second language students. And after, after they do some instruction, the people who want to stay, stay. And we have a handful of, of ladies who stay. And we've been looking through the, the Gospel of John. And we got to John chapter 10 uh, just, just this past week. And we were talking about, I am the door of the sheep or, or the gate. Uh, in some translations as well. And I just asked them the question, you know, what is your view? Is there something that happens when you die? What's next? And if there is, then how do you get there? What's the, what's the door? Because that's the image G Jesus gives, is, is this picture of safety, and, 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 and it's, it's hinting to something to come. He says, this is how you get to eternal life. I am the gate, I'm the door, I'm the way you get there. So I was asking, what do you think? How do you get there? And for, for some of that discussion, it was, you know, and they have a, a, a different tradition, an idea about is there a God or isn't there a God? But one of the, one of the people said something I thought very, very profound and very honest. She said, I am the door. I'm the door. I'll get myself there. And I think that's probably a pretty prevalent thought process at the end of the day in all kinds of different systems. What a heavy burden. You have to get there yourself. What happens if you don't? And most people have an idea of something next. How are you going to get there? This is the beauty of the gospel. God, who is perfect, dwells in eternal light, made himself human, entered into our darkness so that he could overcome it by dying. And then you and I can know life. So for the believer, for the follower of Christ, he's the door. We, couldn't, we can't do that. We can't bear that burden, nor do we have to. And so to the extent that we do, you need to lay that down, bro and sis. You are not Jesus. 
You are not the eternal divine word. You can't even speak a filet mignon into existence. You can't even speak something, just, you know, a flank steak into existence. A skyline coney. I don't care what it is. You can't do it. But God can do anything. He's the eternal divine word. And this Christmas, as we think again about this reality, then hopefully we'll see that hope shines eternal. It never stops. And especially if things look dark. Christ meets you in that darkness. And he shines brightly in the midst of it. Perhaps even more so because it's dark. Father, we pray this Advent season then that our hearts would be rekindled with hope that the truth of a verse that we've just read shines eternal, never ends, is always present, even when things seem darkest. Just the smallest flicker of light dispels what is dark. And we'll see next week and admit perhaps that we have darkness in our own hearts and we reject that, but would you overcome even those barriers today, especially if we've been resistant to this before? Show us who you are. I mean, what a great God we serve. One who lays down his life for people such as I. That's the message of Christmas, and we want to unpackage that and explore it again, and we pray that you'd give us strength for the day and bright hope for tomorrow as well because of Christ, the living word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.